The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new. have a Bible with you, I invite you to grab it and turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're starting a new sermon series this morning called Rethink, where we're just acknowledging the reality that there is something of a cultural phenomenon happening where people are rethinking their relationship with faith, people rethinking their relationship with the church. There was an article that came out just a couple of weeks ago in the Atlantic that says that 40 million Americans have stopped attending church in the last 25 years. That's something like 12% of the population, and it represents the largest concentrated change in church attendance in American history. People who have grown up in church are walking away from their faith, or at least walking away from the church in unprecedented numbers. This term deconstruction is is everywhere. We're we're seeing it and hearing about it on our social media feeds. Some of us have people in our lives, our friends, our families, people that we love that are going through this experience. Some, perhaps, who are here feel it deep down in their souls. So we find ourselves at a moment where we're seeing something happening very broadly in our culture and we're experiencing it close to home. And and the question I think for us is, what if? What if one of the most sacred places in your journey is precisely the place where you don't have all the answers? That in that place, that that perhaps the old answers don't fully satisfy anymore, where you don't know what to do or where to go, but it can be a disorienting and disruptive, uncomfortable but it can be sacred and tender. It's a place that opens us up to new ideas, new understanding, new experiences, and new depths. Many people today are rethinking their faith. Some find themselves struggling with what feel like childhood answers to very grown-up questions. Others are shedding toxic baggage that got attached to their faith experience along the way. Still others find themselves put off by representations of Christianity that look so unlike Christ. And we just want you to know that Irving Bible Church is a safe place to rethink your faith, a safe place to struggle with doubt. Wherever you are on the journey, you are welcome here. And I realize in a room this size, for for some, this is not your experience, and and yet it's likely that there are people that you know. Perhaps for you, it's children, grandchildren, friends, family, loved ones that are going through this experience of wrestling with deep, profound questions about their faith, struggling with a crisis of faith, wrestling with doubt. We want to address those kinds of issues in this sermon series. I am by no means an expert on deconstruction, but I get it. And I care profoundly about that as a pastor. Deconstruction is the taking apart of the version of faith that's been passed down to you in order to process what faith now may or may not look like. And I just want to start this series by acknowledging that this 
process can be a very normal, very natural, even for some necessary part of spiritual formation. To to normalize the conversation about the struggle to believe and just to remind all of us that the struggle to believe is not the same as unbelief. The struggle to believe is not the same as a failure to believe. But that sometimes we need to, to, to take the pieces apart and hold them up and examine them closely to say, is this true? And is this mine? For me, I had an experience when I was going through college where there was just a season of my life where I had to wrestle with these big questions. There's a a, a sort of phase that is construction that for many of us happens in childhood where we're given a version of faith, but then there is a point at which we have to engage in this process of taking the pieces apart and asking, is this true and is this mine? Have I embraced this not as something that was given to me, but as something that I have received, that I have taken on, that I have embraced as my own? And a process of putting the pieces back together. I have a friend who's himself going through something of an experience of deconstruction in his faith, and, and yet he offered, I think, a really compelling metaphor. For him, it feels like remodeling. That sometimes you actually have to do that demolition work to, to take things apart in order to put something together that is now more beautiful and more compelling. And I just want to point out that there are many characters on display for us in the pages of the Bible that experience something of a crisis of faith. There are many characters in the pages of the Bible that experience profound questions and doubts. And the Bible never flinches in the face of questions and doubts. The Bible never shames anybody who's experiencing those kinds of questions and doubts. The Bible never gets angry with anybody who's experienced those kinds of questions and doubts. There is something comforting to know that when we struggle in those kinds of ways, when we deal with those kinds of questions, those kinds of issues, those kinds of crises of faith, we are in good company. And this morning, I wanna look with you at a story of somebody who is held up as a hero of faith, but who dealt with a crisis, who dealt with doubt. And we'll see the way that that story plays out and the way that Jesus responds to it. So look with me, if you will, at Luke chapter seven. We're gonna begin reading in verse 18. The context here, Jesus is engaged in his public ministry. He's doing miracles. And we're gonna pick up the story in verse 18 of John the baptizer. Verse 18, John's disciples told him about all these things, all the things that Jesus was doing in his public ministry. And calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Now, this is a remarkable moment because John the Baptist has literally believed in Jesus from the womb, right? We're we're told this story about Elizabeth when she's pregnant with John and Mary when she's pregnant with Jesus. And when the two of them meet one another, baby John leaps in the womb, John, in his own public ministry, had the opportunity to baptize Jesus in the Jordan River. He said of him, he's one who comes after me whose 
the strap of whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. John pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was a man of profound faith, a man of profound faith in Jesus. And yet now he is in a crisis of faith. And he sends two of his disciples to Jesus to say, are, are you the one? Or should we be looking for somebody else? Now, we're not given this detail in Luke's account, but if you read the same story in the book of Matthew, we're told part of the backdrop of this story is that John is now in prison. John has been arrested and thrown into a, a dark, dang prison cell by, by Herod. And, and as he's sitting there in this prison cell, he is wrestling with this crisis of faith. And I think as we look at John and we think about his account, there, there are several layers that can be actually illuminating for us about some of the reasons why people find themselves wrestling with big questions and dealing with crisis of faith, facing the reality of doubt in their own journey. Some of the things that I think are true of John that are oftentimes true of us. One of those sources of doubt is just intellectual uncertainty. That in this moment, in this experience, John just finds himself going, do I really believe? Is this really true? And I think there are those times, those experiences in our lives where we find ourselves wrestling with big intellectual questions about the faith. Do I really believe this? Is this really true? Intellectual uncertainty. And if you're there, if you're finding yourself wrestling right now with some of those big intellectual questions, I just wanna tell you as a pastor, the last thing that I would wanna do is to squelch your doubts or, or tell you to stop asking questions, to suppress your uncertainty, rather to encourage you to go deep in interrogating your faith, to, to, to be rigorous in your inquiry, because I believe that the Christian faith can stand up to rigorous inquiry and deep interrogation, to, to look for the best answers to the questions that you're wrestling with to look deeply because what can sometimes happen is that when we find ourselves wrestling with these big questions, our responses to them can be superficial. The questions themselves get us off track rather than pursuing the answers with deep inquiry. If there's a risk to this whole idea of deconstruction, it's that it ends with deconstruction and never gets to a place of putting the pieces back together. So be deep and rigorous in your inquiry into these Big intellectual questions. Pursue the best answers available. Intellectual uncertainty. The second thing I think that we see in John's story and that is often true in our stories is unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. John believed Jesus was Messiah, the, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world, the one who was going to be the liberating king. And so John had all kinds of expectations about what Messiah was supposed to look like, and it didn't look like this. All sort of expectations about what it would mean for him to be alongside Jesus, the liberating king, the Messiah. And it didn't look like sitting in a dark, dank prison cell. John has unmet expectations. This isn't what it was supposed to look like. This isn't where I was supposed to be. And I think we can find ourselves wrestling in exactly the same kinds of ways. That sometimes we have expectations of life, expectations of God, and those expectations go unmet. This isn't 
the way it was supposed to go. This isn't the way it was supposed to be. This isn't where I was supposed to be. And we can find ourselves struggling, a crisis of faith that comes from unmet expectations. A third thing that I think is part of the layering of John's story that also relates to what many are experiencing today is religious hypocrisy. It was the collusion of the political and religious powers of the day that had John in prison. They were fearful that his popularity was a threat to their power. And so that's how he ended up in prison. Religious hypocrisy. And I think there are many today who find themselves wrestling with faith because of what they see in Christians. That their issue isn't so much with Christ as it is Christ's followers. That, um, Brendan Manning once said, the greatest single cause of atheism today is Christians who honor God with their lips but deny him with their lifestyle. And this is what the unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Religious hypocrisy. Sometimes it's people seeing hypocrisy up close and personal in people who claim to follow Christ. Sometimes it's looking at the church and the way that we respond to the pressing cultural and social issues of our day. And that sense that Christians look so unlike Christ. It's causing many to walk away from their faith or at least to walk away from the church. Intellectual uncertainty, unmet expectations, religious hypocrisy, and finally, pain. John is in pain. John is suffering, sitting in that jail cell, awaiting his execution. And in that place of pain, in that place of suffering, he finds himself in a crisis of faith. I've shared with many of you before that I found myself at a crisis of faith a number of years ago as I was living through the experience of watching my dad die of cancer. And for me, this was a profound crisis of faith. I was in seminary at the time and I would show up every day to school and I would listen to these lectures. I was studying the Bible and thinking, do I, do I really believe any of this stuff? And the reason that I found myself so profoundly struggling with my faith because I was in pain. And I think many find themselves there. The problem of suffering leads to a crisis of faith. This was what was true of John's story, but I want you to see how Jesus responds. Look with me at verse 21. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases and sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messenger, go back and report to John what, you see, what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, when you see this response, I want you to first notice with me what Jesus doesn't do. Right? Very important to notice what he doesn't do, and that is Jesus does not flinch when he hears about John's doubt. Jesus doesn't flinch. Jesus does not shame. Jesus does not get angry. He does not judge, and neither should we. I love the words that we read in the book of Jude, Jude 1, that says to the church, be merciful to those who doubt. 
Be merciful to those who doubt. And this is what Jesus does and calls us to as well. The best thing for those of us who aren't deconstructing is not to be judgmental or afraid, but to have compassion and to learn to accompany and to be patient with those who are. To offer the gift of presence in the midst of crisis. Because sometimes the gift of presence is more important than us being able to give all the answers. It's to show up and be there with people in the midst of their crisis. Jesus doesn't flinch, he doesn't shame, he doesn't get angry, he doesn't judge, and neither should we. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus, it's almost like they come to him and they present the question to him and he goes, hang on just a second. And he goes over here and he does all these miracles. But there's a a real significance to what he does. That it's not just he's putting his miraculous power on display, but the particular things that Jesus does that he then tells them to go back and repeat to John are specific kinds of miracles that are pointed to in the book of Isaiah. When Isaiah points ahead to the coming day, when Yahweh would return to his people, when when Messiah would come and begin the work of setting the world to right, these specific things were foretold of that coming day. In other words, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, go tell John what you see. I'm doing the Messiah stuff. It's as though he's saying, John, I realize that Messiah may not look the way you thought Messiah was going to look. That your expectations don't align with what's happening. But, but John, it's happening. It's as though Jesus is saying, John, I am who you think I am. You have to trust me. I know it doesn't look like you thought it was going to look. I know it doesn't feel the way you thought it was going to feel. But John, I am who you think I am. You have to trust me. And then watch what happens after the messengers leave in the way that Jesus replies. Verse 24. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, then what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus in those final words is indicating this shift of eras and John is the the last and the greatest of the old era. And now that he has come, that that we are invited by faith into the kingdom of God. And and, and yet what, what Jesus is saying about John, we need not miss. Jesus is saying there is no one born of woman greater than John. He was the one who was sent to come to go before Messiah to prepare the way. There is none greater born of woman than John. He's the goat the greatest of all time. Now that's pretty remarkable because we've just seen John's crisis of faith and yet Jesus holds him up as a hero. 
It's just a really important reminder, I think, to all of us, especially when we find ourselves in those seasons of doubt, that if you're in that season, if you're experiencing a crisis of faith, you're in good company. Because the greatest of all time was there too. That John had this experience of feeling his faith unravel. If you're experiencing doubt, you're in good company. Now, I think it's important that we just underscore that you don't doubt because you're a bad person. You don't doubt because you're an unspiritual person. You doubt because you're a person, because you're human. That, that to be human is to doubt. All of us, regardless of whether our faith is in Jesus or our faith is in whatever, all of us as human beings live by faith. We put our trust in something or someone. We live by faith. The issue is, where is your faith? The, the object of your faith. But to experience doubt is human. I love what Frederick Buechner says. He says that um, whether your faith is that there is a God or there isn't a God, if, if, if you don't um, have doubts, you're not, uh, I'm trying to remember the quote off the top of my head. Um, if you don't have doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. He says doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving, right? What he's saying is doubt is part of the deal. It's part of what it means to be human. The issue for us is not the strength of our faith, the quality of our faith. It is the object of our faith. That we must remember that the struggle to believe is not the same as the failure to believe. The struggle to believe is not the same as unbelief. Sometimes people, I think, abandon their faith because they think they have to. Because they think that that. If I, if I have this kind of doubt, I can't stick with my faith. The problem isn't so much the doubt as it is the thought that they aren't allowed to have any. Your doubt doesn't have to be a destination where you stay stuck. It can be a road that can take you someplace that is deeper and richer and truer. And we want to be a place where we can wrestle together with these questions where we can bring the reality of our struggle honestly into community. Because it's in community with one another that we find healing, that we find growth, that we find change, that we find something deeper and richer and truer. I love the way that Dominic Dunn in his book, When Faith Falls Apart, speaks to this. He says, doubt's greatest strength is secrecy. It loves to linger just beneath the surface of our lives. But if we name our doubts and drag them into the light, we may find resolution. Or we may discover the tension of authentically living a doubt-filled faith. Either way, it's not until we engage our doubts that our faith can grow. I feel like, for me personally, coming off of sabbatical, my faith is stronger than it's been in a long, long time. And yet I am still one who has seasons of struggle with doubt. And I've said to you before, I thought for a long time I could never be a pastor because I can't be a pastor with the reality of doubt in my life the way that it is. And yet what I've come to discover is that my ability to stand before you and say, here's me, doubts and all. This is where I struggle is one of the 
most important gifts that I have to give to the congregation because so many have come to me and say, thank you. You too. That we're in this together. Intellectual uncertainty. Unmet expectations. Religious hypocrisy. Pain. All of these can lead to a crisis of faith. All of these can lead to doubt. And I think the story this morning reminds us that if you're there, you're in good company. John the Baptist, the greatest of all time, was there. Interesting to note, all of Jesus' earliest followers, all of Jesus' closest friends, found themselves at a crisis of faith after Jesus died on the cross. All of them were at a moment of crisis of faith. If you're experiencing this reality, you're in good company. But they saw him, and it changed them forever. I'll never forget years ago when I was in my own crisis of faith, showing up to seminary class one day as I was wrestling with these questions, And it wasn't on the agenda, it wasn't on the schedule, it didn't fit the lecture, but my professor, one of our most beloved professors, one of my heroes, began to share his own story of a season in his life that was for him a crisis of faith. And uh, as he began to share, my eyes just welled up with tears because it was just that moment where here I am listening to one of my heroes tell about an experience that is exactly what I was going through. I felt that sense of, I'm in good company. But as he shared his story, he he got to a moment where he was talking about this experience with his wife as he was just pouring out his heart about all the questions, all the struggles, all the doubts. And she said, but what about Jesus? What are you gonna do with Jesus? And he said in that moment, it was a breakthrough because while all those questions were still there and still real and still meaningful, they mattered. At the heart of the issue, it's Jesus. And he said, ah, oh, Jesus, I, I love him and he has always loved me. And, and friends, I would just say again, the issue is not the strength of our faith, the quality of our faith, but the object of our faith. (laughs) If you're experiencing doubt, you're in good company. But Jesus, I believe, wants to say to you, like you said to John, I know it may not look the way you thought it was gonna look. I know it may not feel the way you thought it was gonna feel, but I am who you think I am. Trust me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for this powerful story from the scriptures that uh, speak to the reality that many of us find ourselves living through in one way or another, either our own personal struggles or, Lord, people that we love that are walking through these seasons. And we pray, Lord, that you would um, just speak to our hearts from this story, from this hero of faith who had a crisis of faith to the response of Jesus 
and the invitation of trust. And God, we pray that today we would hear that invitation for us personally and trust you. And Lord, I pray that in these moments of response that each of us would respond to you as is fitting for us today. That we might um, be your people who live in such a way that points to the truth and beauty of the gospel. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new.